Thank you very much, Sharon. Notice the first thing she said. Somebody invited her to church. A friend invited her to church. Did that friend know for a fact what was going to happen in subsequent weeks, months, and years? Not with a certainty, but that friend invited Sharon to church. That's a start. If we would just invite somebody who doesn't go, we got a day you can do it. We got some cards you can use to, to invite them with. These uh, Back to Church Sunday cards are available on the connection booth uh, in the foyer. Pick some up, invite somebody. You don't know what'll happen in the weeks, months, and years that follow, but maybe it'll be somebody's testimony down the road that a friend invited me to church and you were that friend. So let's do that. All right, this morning, Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 11 through 20, and then verses 33 and 34. But before we get there, our memory verse, for the last time, because I'm not going to be here next Sunday, I'm going to a preach in a church in Baton Rouge, and nope, it's not what some of you are thinking. A friend invited me to do it because he's going to be out of town, and uh, it's a, 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 he's, he's not leaving, so I'm, they're not considering me, and it ain't nothing like that. I'm just filling in for a friend. And Andy is going to be preaching uh, for us next Sunday. Uh, and I don't know that he'll go over the memory verse, so this will be the last Sunday. And I did work on it this week, but I am still going to mess it up royally, probably. So, uh, rather than mess it up, let's try it. The person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is in the Lord, is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends out its roots toward a stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. I did better than I have done. Thank you for the applause there with my son. All right, and a few others, thanks. Now stop. Uh, all right. Our series theme through Jeremiah and, and this would be the last sermon in Jeremiah anyway. If, if, uh, if I were going to be here, there was one sermon from Lamentations, and I don't know what Andy was preaching on. I don't tell folks what to preach on, so he will do what the Lord leads. Uh, so this would be the last week in Jeremiah anyway. And our series theme has been faithfulness in drought, taken from that memory verse that we've uh, been working on. It's faithfulness. It's, it's our faithfulness but it's also God's faithfulness. It's, it's faithfulness that will, that will continue to produce fruit even when it makes no earthly sense to do so, even when it doesn't look like it will help or do any good. It might be fruitfulness that looks like inviting somebody to church even when you may think they won't come, it won't make a difference, or whatever you excuse you might use to not invite them. Fruitfulness says, I do what I'm told. Obedience, right? Now, how can we do that? Well, the memory verse tells us how we can do that, how we can be fruitful or, or faithful in drought. We, we trust in the Lord. Our confidence indeed is the Lord. And that's the title of the message this morning. Our confidence is the Lord. Why can we trust though? So the verse tells us how we, we will produce fruit, how our trust is in the Lord, our confidence indeed is the Lord, but why? Why is our trust in the Lord? Why is our confidence indeed the Lord. Why can he be our confidence? The, the, the passage that we're going to look at this morning gives us a clear picture and also a, a comforting ending to our series, but a clear picture about who, uh, about the God who is 
our confidence. Of course, it's a historical narrative. It's telling us what what will happen. It's a prophetic narrative. Uh, It's telling us what God is going to do and what he actually does. We know that it, it happens. But deeper than that, more than that, we see his character as he deals with both Israel and Babylon in this final collection of oracles by Jeremiah. We see God in this, in this passage. Uh, there, there's truthfully only so much you can say about God will judge Babylon and he'll judge them in these ways, which is if we go through the ways that he judges them, it's, you know, death and destruction, death and destruction, over and over, just in different ways. And he will restore Israel. He will forgive Israel. And, and, and then we've pretty well come to the end of this, this prophecy. And we could read on further in chapter 50 and find out other ways that, they, that Babylon will be judged with similar outcome and Israel will be uh, restored with similar outcome. But what do we see just below the surface? We see, I believe, the character of God. And that's our big idea this morning. Because of the perfect, unchanging character of God. Next slide, please, Pat. Oh, I didn't change it. Whoops. So that's not going to be on the screen. You can go on to the first point because I messed up. Because of the perfect, unchanging character of God, we can be trusting and confident in Him and flourish through the most difficult of times. I hate that I forgot to put that on the screen because it's wordy and it helps to see things for some of you anyway. So let me say it again. Because of the perfect, unchanging character of God, we can be trusting and confident in Him and flourish through the most difficult of times. Well, this passage, as I said, tells us of His character. Read with me, beginning in chapter Uh, verse 11 of chapter 50. Jeremiah is speaking, speaking the Lord's words to Babylon. Verse 11, because you rejoice, because you celebrate, you who plundered my inheritance, because you frolic like a young cow treading grain and neigh like stallions, your mother will be utterly humiliated. She who bore you will be put to shame. Look, she will lag behind all the nations, an arid wilderness, a desert. Because of the Lord's wrath, she will not be inhabited. She will become a desolation, every bit of her. Everyone who passes through Babylon will be appalled and scoff because of all her wounds. Line up in battle formation around Babylon, all you archers. Shoot at her, do not spare an arrow, for she has sinned against the Lord." Raise a war cry against her on every side. She has thrown up, in her, uh, thrown up her hands in surrender. Her defense towers have fallen. Her walls are demolished. Since this is the Lord's vengeance, take your vengeance on her. As she has done, do the same to her. Cut off the sower from Babylon, as well as him who wields the sickle at harvest time. Because of the oppressor's sword, each will turn to his own people. Each will flee to his own land." Israel is a stray lamb, chased by lions. The first who devoured him was the king of Assyria. The last who crushed his bones was King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Therefore, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says, I'm about to punish the king of Babylon and his land just as I punished the king of Assyria. I will return Israel to its grazing land. And he will feed on Carmel and Bashan. He will be satisfied in the hill country of Ephraim and Gilead. In those days and at that time, this is the Lord's declaration, one will search for Israel's iniquity, but there will be none, and for Judah's sins, but they will not be found, for I will forgive those I leave as a remnant. And flip over to verse 33. This is what the Lord of armies says, Israelites and Judeans alike have been oppressed. All their captors hold them fast. They refuse to release them. Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of armies is his name. He will fervently champion their cause so that he might bring rest to the earth, but turmoil to those who live in Babylon. So as I said, we we see 
the judgment of Babylon and we see the restoration of Israel, things that, that God has promised and talked about throughout Scripture. And this, this chapter 50 uh, uh, and 51 and uh, maybe 52, I think 52 is the last chapter, if I remember correctly. Yeah, uh, 50 and 51, they are a, a collection of, very likely anyway, a collection of various oracles and prophecies that Jeremiah preached over time, collected together to show this is what will happen to Babylon and this is what ha- will happen to Israel. And again, judgment for Babylon, redemption for Israel. But what does all of this say about God? That's what we're looking at this morning. The character of God, the perfect, unchanging character of God that allows Jeremiah, that, that leads Jeremiah by the Holy Spirit to prophesy, to say to the people our memory verse from this month or this quarter, the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed, and he will or she will be fruitful, as if there were no drought, as if there was rain, as if everything was fine, even when things aren't fine. Well, what in God's character do we see in these passages that tell us that? First of all, we see that God is just. It is a comfort that God is just. We don't like justice when it's uh, against us. We like justice when someone else is receiving it. We tend to think, but, you know, it's not just when, when it's happening to me. God is just. God is always just. And it's an interesting place to come to in, in this these oracles uh, in, in history, where God is now saying he will punish Babylon for what they did. Because all we have to do is just go back a few chapters and we realize that God, that, that Babylon was punishing Israel for what they did. Babylon was an instrument of God's judgment. And now he is punishing, punishing them for their actions. We would maybe want to think, well, that just doesn't seem fair. That's not just. They were doing what he wanted. Well, we know that God does not cause sin. God does not tempt. Sin is not something that God does, and it is not something that God makes others do. This was Babylon's nature. This is who they are because they are pagan. They worship false gods. They don't worship Yahweh. This is who they are. So when they decided to do this to Israel, God allowed it. He didn't cause it. He didn't make them evil, make them barbaric so that they would destroy Israel. But in their evil, in their barbarity, he allowed and used that to punish and discipline his people. He used who Babylon was. But then they, according to this passage, you rejoiced, you celebrated, you frolicked and and neighed like horses. You thought it was a grand old time what you were doing to Israel. And because of your barbarism, because of how sinful you are, because of your actions, you will be judged. See, God is just. God punishes sin no matter who commits the sin. Babylon took credit for being God. And God said, nope, that doesn't work. I'm God and you're going to see it. So we see in this first passage, the first couple of verses here, first three verses, that, that God is just. We keep moving, or actually we stay right there in verse 11. We, we narrow down just a little bit, and we find that, number two, God is faithful. Verse 11, he says to Babylon, Because you rejoice, because you celebrate, you who plundered my inheritance... 
you who plundered what is mine. As much as has happened, as far as Israel has strayed from God, as as intense as the discipline on Israel has been, God is still faithful to them. They are still his inheritance. He has not rejected them. I guarantee you they felt rejected. They felt like, where was God in all this? Of course, Jeremiah was right there to tell them where he was, but they weren't too good at listening to Jeremiah, and not much uh, changed at this point. Yet, God was faithful. God is still keeping his promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, and all of Israel, still keeping his promise that he would never leave them nor forsake them, that they would always be his people. He's keeping his part of the deal even when Israel did not. Y'all remember, I told you, I have told you about the treaty system and what Abraham did with God. When, when God covenanted with Abraham and, and signed this signed this treaty and they split the animals open and in in the ancient near east both parties would walk between the animals showing that they are both committing to keeping the covenant that when that happened only god only the flaming pot uh the flaming cauldron that represented god at that moment that it was the only one abraham uh uh, went to sleep and had a vision and he saw god covenant God signed the treaty but Abraham didn't because God was going to keep the covenant no matter what God's promises are true God's promises are yes and amen God doesn't pull back when we pull away God doesn't say fine we're done all those all those things I told you nope you have just gone too far that is not the way God works. God is faithful even when we are faithless. That's New Testament as well as old. We see it over and over in new, the New Testament and we are reminded. Why can we trust in the Lord and why is the Lord our confidence? Because he's just because he is faithful and number three because he is impartial. Verse 14, line up all you archers, shoot at her, do not spare an arrow, for she has sinned against the Lord. We get a hint of that in the fact that he is just, but his justice is impartial. He will punish sin and he will punish the sin of whomever. God uh, punishes all sin against him, whether it's by his people or not. Everyone will stand before the Lord in judgment. And everyone will be judged based on the same standard. Uh, Commonly you hear today, only God can judge me. Oh, he will. That's not something you want to brag about or look forward to. Especially considering, usually, the actions that are being committed when that statement is made. Because God will judge you. Judge not, lest ye be judged. It's amazing how many people who've never been to church can quote the King James Version of that verse. But they only quote the first half of that verse. Judge not, lest ye be judged, for... The measure which you use to judge, that will also be used against you. And that is the truth. I know for a fact that when I say to someone, that's sin, or I say of someone, that is sinful, if I say homosexuality is a sin or abortion is a sin, and I'm told, judge not lest ye be judged, I know because the Bible is what tells me homosexuality is a sin and and abortion is a sin and also tells me gossip is a sin and lying is a sin and slander is a sin. I, the Bible is what judges that. 
So I can confidently say, yes, those are sins, and I shouldn't do them either, because both you and I will be judged for those sins. But you know what? Both you and I can also be forgiven for those sins. I don't want to give away the punchline, but I think it's important that we know, even as we speak of sin, grace and forgiveness are there. But that's a little further down the passage. God is just. God is faithful. And God is impartial. Number four, God is vengeful. Verses 15 and 16. She's thrown up her hands in surrender. Her defenses have fallen. But since this is the Lord's vengeance, take vengeance. Keep going. Don't stop. She will, uh, Babylon will no longer have crops, no longer have fields. Babylon was almost, the city of Babylon was almost nothing by the time of the New Testament of Jesus. And it's still not much of anything. As a matter of fact, I don't think the location of Babylon is inhabited at all at this moment. It's somewhere in Iraq, so, but I, and, and don't quote me exactly, but I'm pretty sure it's no longer uh, inhabited at all. God is vengeful. God gets retribution for his people. God cares about his people and how they're treated. We're going to get to that one, in, uh, that characteristic in a few minutes as well. But the reason or the result of his caring is vengeance, either now or later. Is the church persecuted somewhere? There will be vengeance on the persecutors, either now or later. God promised that he will have revenge. But God promised that he will have revenge. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verses 19, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay you. Love your enemies. Vengeance, revenge, is not our responsibility. Because vengeance is not an evangelistic tool. Revenge does not share Jesus with the lost. And if our enemy is coming against us, it is generally, primarily, because they are lost. Brothers dwell together in unity and love. Brothers and sisters, the church is supposed to be unified. The church, not just local, but universal. The church, believers come together and love each other. If there is persecution, it is supposed to be from the outside. It isn't always the case. But let's just assume it's a more perfect world than it actually is. Regardless of from whence the persecution comes, we as believers allow God to take the vengeance and we do the loving. And that even tracks among believers. When believers hurt and harm believers, it is not our responsibility to take the revenge. It is our responsibility to love and let God do the work because God is vengeful. God is just. God is impartial. And therefore, when the time comes, God will take the revenge that he sees fit because vengeance is his, not ours. We can put down our roots. We can dwell in a time of drought, especially if that drought is a result of suffering and pain from attacks from outside or within. Because it's not our battle. It's God's. So we can be fruitful when we love our enemies. Love those who persecute us. Pray for those who persecute us. Number five, God is protective. He is both vengeful and he is protective. He protects his own. And that's one of the reasons he is vengeful. He takes revenge on those who would hurt his. Now, he is also just... He is also impartial, so Israel gets punished severely for their sin because they had strayed. They had completely broken the covenant. 
but God still protects. Even in his discipline, he protects. There is always a remnant. Verse 17 talks about that remnant. It's a stray lamb chased by lions. The first who devoured him was the king of Assyria. The last who crushed his bones was King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And yet, they persist. They survive. There's still a remnant there. He mentions them in just a few verses. How is there always a remnant? Because God's protective. And because we are His, He can discipline as He sees fit. There will always be a remnant of believers, no matter the persecution. As a matter of fact, the church is growing much, much more quickly in places where it is heavily persecuted to the point of death persecution than it is growing in places like North America where it's hardly persecuted at all. Where where what we struggle with at times can barely be called persecution. At most, it's inconvenience and name-calling. I mean, we can, we can say it's persecution, but ain't none of us going to die because we came to church today. Certainly not on a mass scale by the government. But if it does happen, God is protective. God will protect his remnant. There will always be a church And he will be vengeful upon those that would persecute it. God is protective, vengeful, impartial, faithful, just, and God is universal. Verse 18. Therefore, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. I'm about to punish the king of Babylon and his land just as I punished the king of Assyria. God's everywhere. And no sinfulness, no persecution, no act against him goes unseen. Whether it's Babylon, or Assyria, or China, or North Korea, or Sudan, or any other country that persecutes, or any other group that persecutes. God is aware of all of them. He is a God of all nations, whether they acknowledge Him or not. doesn't matter if they believe, follow, and worship. He is still their God. The New Testament tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You know which tongues and knees are excluded from that? None. Believers will bow in worship, Unbelievers will bow in submission as they are, as they hear, depart from me, I never knew you. But we will all bow. We will all confess. Believers who in this life trusted Christ will confess unto salvation, and the lost will confess unto damnation. But we'll all know the truth. He's the God of all nations. He's the God of all people, whether they acknowledge him or not. This is why there's such urgency in evangelism. Because people are dying every day by the thousands and going to hell because they do not know Christ. And they are being judged for that. They will immediately be separated from God and someday at the final judgment will hear, for eternity, you are damned. And suffer. Because God is a universal God, He uses His universal church to take the universal offer of salvation to all who would respond and trust. Number seven, God is gracious. He is gracious. I will return Israel to his grazing land, and he will feed on Carmel and Bashan. He will be satisfied in the hill country of Ephraim and Gilead. Grace means getting what isn't deserved. Israel does not deserve to go home. 
Israel does not deserve to get their land back. Israel does not deserve for everything to be back to normal. Ain't nothing ever going to be normal again after all this, but they don't deserve any of that. It is God's graciousness, God's grace that says, here, I know you don't deserve it. You forfeited every right you had to the land and honestly to me. But I am faithful, he says, and part of who I am is grace, and so I give you what you don't deserve, your home back. We see this in the New Testament. We see it with the prodigal son that, that goes out and squanders his inheritance, and his daddy ain't even dead yet. Comes back, he, he realizes what he's done, he is repented. He, he, he understands his sinfulness. He comes back and he knows he deserves nothing. He says, make me a slave because even they in your house eat better than I was having once I spent all your money. And what does the dad do? He welcomes him with open, arm, open arms, kisses him. My son who is lost is returned. Bring the robe, put it on him, kill the fatted calf. But here's, here's the cool part. A party's something Clothes, when you don't have any, are nice, but put a ring on his finger, and we, we gloss over that if we're not careful. Today's language we, language, we would say, bring him the credit card. Give him access to who I am, to everything. The signet ring, if this is the kind of ring he was giving him, was their signature it was the authority. It was, I am still the, this man's son, and I have his authority, and, and I need to purchase, click, I need to do this, stamp, I need to, this means I have access to everything he has. That boy did not deserve that. But his father was gracious. Our father is gracious. When we sin and we come back, we don't deserve to have the same relationship we had with God prior to our sin. Even as believers, when we wander, when we stray, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love, the God I love. We, we, we know that, and when we come back, God says, you've not lost your place. God, I don't deserve to have the same place. I know, but I am gracious. He says, and we get back to our spot. God is gracious because, and these don't really flow into each other, but occasionally it works. Number eight, God is forgiving. In those days and at that time, this is the Lord's declaration. One will search for Israel's iniquity, but there will be none. For Judah's sins... But they will not be found, for I will forgive those I leave as a remnant. Generally, uh, when the phrase, in those days, is used in the Old Testament, we, we take that to be related to, if not directly, messianic prophecy. In those days, when the Messiah comes. It won't be now. Some of you won't even see it, but one day will come a day when all the sins will be forgiven. And he says that to Israel, I will forgive those I leave as a remnant. How can God forgive? Well, he can forgive because he wants to. I mean, let's just, let's just start there and say, because he's God, he can do what he wants. But God doesn't just forgive. He is also just, right? So a penalty must be paid. There must be a payment. There must be punishment, retribution, vengeance. Well, in this case, in those days, he says, and they will come actually, the beginning of them will come soon when Persia attacks Babylon and Israel gets to go home. He will forgive because the debt is paid. 
They've experienced their punishment. Everything he, would say, he said that would happen because of their sin has happened. They've been removed. Many of them have been killed. It has, they have been cleansed. And when they go home, they will be a different people. When the debt is paid, the sin is removed. Israel paid the debt in Babylon, and God said, Now you are forgiven. When the debt is paid, the sin is removed. When the punishment is received, the sin is paid for. Jesus paid the debt on the cross. Jesus took the punishment on the cross, and by faith, our sin is removed. Our debt is paid. And God is forgiving. See, sometimes we cause the drought. Sometimes it's not just that it didn't rain. Sometimes it's that we did something to make it not rain. Sometimes we did something to cause the problems. And yet, God forgives. And yet, even in the midst of our own created drought God is gracious and we are still fruitful it's not where we want to stay obviously it's not what we well if I just you know if I just create problems God will create fruit from that no no we don't sin so grace will increase Paul tells us that but God is big enough bigger than our sin, sin, bigger than our sinfulness, to even use our mess-ups, our rebellions, to do something great. Sometimes, probably even a lot of times, it comes in the form of a testimony. I was this, but God did this. God is forgiving God is merciful. Number nine, he ends verse 20, for I will forgive those I leave as a remnant. That's the mention of the remnant that I mentioned earlier. This is when he calls them that remnant. As I said, they deserve to be wiped out. The grace was they got the land that they didn't deserve. The mercy is Mercy is uh, not getting what you don't, or not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. They did not deserve to exist. But in God's mercy, He left a remnant, He left a group. In fact, His faithfulness requires his mercy. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. For him to be faithful to people who reject him, he has to be merciful because they deserve one thing, but he doesn't give it to them. You are here today because of God's mercy. You are a follower of Jesus today because of God's mercy. If he gave us what we deserve, even believers, if he gave us what we deserve right now, every one of us would like explode. Just we'd be gone. Because that is what we deserve. But in his mercy, because of the blood of Jesus, because of his faithfulness, because of his the next one, compassion. We don't. We stick around. His compassion we find in verse 33. This is what the Lord of armies says. Israelites and, Judean, Israelites and Judeans alike have been oppressed. All their captors hold them fast. They refuse to release them. Notice that he is still using this descriptor Israelites. Remember, th this is happening in 05, 
80 BC, something like that. Israel as a country has not existed since 722 BC. 140 years they have been gone. And, and there wasn't much of a remnant, probably no remnant left of the northern kingdom of Israel and the ten tribes that made up that kingdom. Because when Assyria came in, they not only killed them, they not only uh, exiled them, but Assyrians moved in and Assyrians moved other uh, uh, nationalities in so that they could breed Israel out of the area. They became just a sort of mixed group of people because they wanted to completely destroy Israel. And yet God says, Israel and Judah. Because even the Israel that currently exists, and I'm talking about the, the country the, at this time, the, the people that are somewhere out there, God still has compassion on them. God is still compassionate for them. He is compassionate for the poor and oppressed. If you went through radical with us over these last seven weeks or the previous seven weeks, six weeks, you heard about that. He is compassionate toward those who are wrongfully treated, whether they are his own or not. A lot of the oracles of the prophets in the Old Testament are to uh, other countries, but they reference how those countries treated others besides Israel. You're just awful people, and you treat people awfully. You oppress people, and, and God does not like that. God is compassionate toward those people. But especially, God is compassionate toward the sinner, sin being the worst oppression we have. The uh, International Mission Board's uh, vision, uh, mission statement, or maybe it's just a catchphrase at this point, is going after the, I can't remember how they put it, the, the number one problem in the world is lostness. That's it. Poverty and starvation and disease, those are all issues that we need to be compassionate about and take care of, but the number one problem is lostness. God cares about that because God is compassionate. For God so loved the world, had such compassion for the world that he gave his only son to save them. Number 11, God is redeemer. For God so loved the world that he put on flesh, he took on flesh, and in the second person of the Trinity came to earth to live as a man, to redeem, to redeem, to buy back, to purchase, to take the punishment, to pay the debt, because God is a redeemer. He gets his own back. The, the source of redeemer goes back to the book of... Uh, Ruth, where Boaz marries Ruth because it's, they're part of the same family. It is his responsibility to marry Ruth as the closest relative, the kinsman redeemer, to save the family by marrying this widow of his cousin, is what it ended up being. He was a kinsman related to the family, and he was the redeemer. He saved them. He got back his own family. He provided the means necessary to do that by marrying. God rescued Israel from Babylon. Now, he provided the means for that in the, in the uh, nation of Persia. Babylon actually didn't last that long as a, as a major power. Persia comes in and takes over, and then Israel comes home. So God rescued Israel from Babylon, not Persia, but he used the tool of Persia. God rescued Ruth, but he used the tool of Boaz as the kinsman redeemer. God wants to rescue the world, the world he loved, in this way, by using Christ, the means, gracious and merciful God, 
sacrifices his son to buy back, to redeem, to pay the debt, to take the punishment of each and every one of us. How can we trust in the Lord? Why in the world is he our confidence in times of drought? How is it that we can be fruitful in these dry times, green foliage and fruit, because we serve a perfect, unchanging God who is just, who is faithful, who is impartial, who is vengeful, who is protective, who is universal, who is gracious, who is forgiving, who is merciful, who is compassionate, and who is Redeemer. We can do that because we've trusted Christ. That forgiveness is available and the call is universal. All who call on his name will be saved. The debt is paid and by faith your sin can be removed from you. Like Israel, you will be forgiven. That's why in one of the most famous passages of Jeremiah... Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 12. Gotcha. It's not one of the most famous. We kind of skip over it. But Jeremiah tells the people, when you're in the land, when you're over there, yeah, 29, 11, I know the plans for, I have for you, plans to prosper, but 12. You will call to me, and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. This morning, the character of our God says to you, if you call to me, and if you come to me, and if you pray to me, I will listen to you. I will forgive your sin. I will save you. That's the call. That's the God that allows us to flourish in a time of drought as if water is abundant because we serve an all-powerful God who never changes. The God who took vengeance on Babylon and restored Israel today wants to take vengeance on your sin and restore your eternity. Will you come to him, call to him, and pray to him? Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Our, our debt, our payment, our punishment is death. The weight, we see it, right? Israel the wages of their sin was death. But the gift, the provision, the source, the, oh, the gift, the provision is, is eternal life. There is forgiveness available. There is a, 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 a change in who we are. And the provision, the source of that is Jesus. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Will you Come this morning, call out to Jesus, pray to him, Lord, forgive me and save me. Some of you know all about Jesus. You can quote scriptures, but you have never asked for forgiveness and asked for salvation from him. Yes, it is an act, not, not an act like you're acting. It is a, a moment, it is a, a choice that you make. Have you made the choice? Our God will save you, won't he? Sure will. Come to him today. Let's pray. Father, we get caught up in our droughts. We look around and we see the problems that sometimes we've created, sometimes that just are, they're there and we didn't, we don't least, we at least we don't think we did anything to cause them. And there you are, though, faithful, 
our confidence. Because of who you are and who, who you promised you would be and you don't change and you were the same for Israel and you were the same for us. Lord, may we, because of your faithfulness, find flourishing in our most difficult of times. But Lord, this morning, may we realize, may we see in ourselves if we have not trusted Jesus as Savior. We've got the knowledge of it, but Lord, maybe we don't have the action. We don't have the saving faith. I pray today we, we would see that among the people here and those watching online. Lord, we thank you that you are gracious and merciful, just and holy and loving and compassionate, all these things that we talked about, because all those things combine to make you our only hope through the shed blood of Jesus. God, may we respond today. If we are in a drought as a believer, or if we're completely outside the camp, and we need to become a follower of Jesus today, may we trust in you. May our confidence indeed be you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what's your next step this morning? To take up your cross, to follow him, leaving your life behind. Maybe it's to be baptized like Sharon was last week. Submit to the Lord, conforming your life to his, joining our church. What is your decision with us? Share it. You can write it on a card. You can come up. I'll be here on my right. Chelsea will be to my left. Two deacons, Lee and Kirk, will be in the back, and Justin, our youth minister, will be in the back as well. Maybe you just want somebody to pray with you. You come, if that's how you're being led. Maybe you just want to pray up here, pray where you are. Whatever the decision is, make it. Don't put it off. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. Let's stand, let's worship, and do business with the Lord this morning.